Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. All right. Good morning, church. Man, wasn't worship awesome? I really like that that last song is an older song, but man, it's so powerful. Just thinking about worshiping the Lord. Uh, Revelation chapter 15, if you have a Bible, turn with me there real quick. And just a couple things. If, if you're not serving somewhere in this church and, and this, you're, this is your home for church, I want to encourage you to serve somewhere to get involved. We have lots of needs. In particular, I want to call out um, worship in children's ministry and also in the youth. So if you have some, you know, if you can sing, kind of, we need you. Uh, so, uh, you know, honestly, it's, it's uh, just the heart of worship is what we're looking for in that regard. So if you have a heart of worship and uh, you want to uh, be part of that, we would love to have you um, serve in that area. You can talk to one of our elders, Randy Lamaster. He handles that, the children's ministry area. If you're interested in the youth, you can talk to Daniel Fernandez or myself, um, wherever he is. But um, So make sure you, over here, <laughs> there he is. Uh, so, you know, make sure you, you connect. There's all kinds of other ways. If you are interested in serving and you don't, you'd like to know more, you can grab the connect card. You can fill it out, put it in the offering box or take it to the welcome center. And uh, Pastor Mike or somebody from here, the, one of the elders will call and talk to you about areas of, of need there. Also want to bring up, you know, the, the summer barbecues and also moving into the this coming fall when uh, the marriage ministry uh, classes start, we want to encourage you. If you'd like to serve to, in, in just blessing the marriages and be part of the, um, you know, taking care of the kids, uh, we're going to pay you to do that. So if you're interested in that, let us know. Uh, th- there will be activities and stuff. We'll, we'll figure out some things for the kids to do that we're not just going to pack them in a room and shut the door. We'll actually have some things for them to do. We want to, we want to minister to them while they're here as well. So I want to encourage you to do that. You can talk to the Buckleys or the Mondaries about if you're interested in that. Um, and then one other thing, if, you were, if you're looking, you know, you, you're interested in maybe working part-time or something, we do have some needs in the overflowing cup in our coffee ministry here at the church. So if you're interested in learning more about that, you can talk to Pastor Mike about that as well. So um, that does it in the way of my announcements and also Guns and Grubs the 11th, right? So is that what you were saying? I think, yeah, so, so just, just so you we're clear. 11th. Um, and uh, stand with me. We're going to read the first verse of Revelation chapter 15. And um, we're going to finish whole, uh, the chapter this morning, but I'm going to just read the first verse that will set us up as we move it through the passages here this morning. Revelation chapter 15, beginning of verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels and seven plagues which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Father, we we come before you now, Lord. We pray that you would speak to our hearts as only you can. We ask, Lord, that um, as we surrender and seek you in desperation, Lord, that you would meet us in this place. We we pray, Lord, that uh, you would stir our hearts to the warning that is present here in this passage. Lord, the, the finality of what's being spoken of here. And Lord, uh, maybe it doesn't apply to us in terms of the effects of that, but Lord, there's a world out there that is dying without Jesus. And so would you stir our hearts this morning, God, 
particularly in this month as this country is celebrating pride, Lord, that you would draw our hearts to yourself, God, and that you would help us to be the church that would make Jesus proud and represent him well and not defame his name. God, we pray that you would do the work in our hearts this morning. Here we are on the day of Pentecost, celebrating Shabbat, Lord. We pray that you would send your spirit upon us this morning. Fall upon us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You ever notice how we are fascinated with the end of things? Like we want to know the end, right? I'm going to expose you this morning. How many of you are people who cannot finish a book but have to partway through the book look to the end and see what happens? Anybody in this place a spoiler? There's one, two, there's a, there's a few of you. That's awesome. Well, I want to vindicate you this morning because that is an awesome thing. Uh, Interesting enough, researchers at UC San Diego actually say that spoilers enjoy reading the book more than people who don't spoil the end. Who would have thought, you know, cheating pays, kids, you know, that's, that's what we're teaching people these days. The research suggests that it's because the reader is more at ease with the twists and turns of the storyline, knowing the end, and it allows them to experience the storyline better. Makes total sense, doesn't it? How difficult would it be for you and I to start in Genesis, not know the end in in Revelation, and and to just read through and be comfortable with the storyline? Anybody uh, think like, wow, this is an easy read. You know, I think that it would be incredibly frightening for us. I remember as... Uh, someone who, who had not been churched before, and the, my first time, my first journey through uh, the, the, the Bible, book to book, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, I remember when I got to the end of the Old Testament, I was like, what a mean God. I mean, wow. You know, I, 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 and, and, and not even having the, the end in sight, not knowing even uh, you know, there are ministries that go into indigenous tribes and different places around the world, and they teach them like this. They go in and they teach them about the justice of God and the judgment of God and, and you know, and, and all of these kinds of things and how the world is, and they let them experience the Bible like in real time. Like they have no, they have no sight of Jesus and how uncomfortable that is. But when Jesus shows up, in the scene, it's the, these, uh, I can't remember what, this, what the ministry's called, but it's amazing. They talk about the cheers and the roars of these indigenous people as they hear about Jesus and about what he's done for us. Then they know the end. You read the rest of the, the New Testament with sort of a, 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 a weight lifted off your shoulders. It's the same thing with somebody who tries to attempt to live for God on their own or, you know, by rules and regulations, and then they find grace. And that weight is lifted off their shoulders, and they're like, oh, finally. And then the, then then the storyline is much easier to enjoy. But if you know the end of it, it, it's very, very much easy to enjoy the storyline because you know what's going to happen. 
It doesn't matter what ha- you know, all of the nuances in and out of it. You know the end game. There's also, uh, we, we love the end of things, and, and, and that also applies to, uh, you know, TV series. When it comes to the TV series and such, you know, the, the most watched episode in the series is the finale, right? This has nothing to do with uh, Revelation chapter 15, but do you know what the most watched episode, uh, finale episode is? Nope. MASH. MASH. Listen, by a landslide, who watches MASH? I mean, what is MASH? I remember when I was a kid, I was like, what is, man, I don't want to watch this. This is, where's Klinger at anyways, you know? Number two is Cheers. A place where everybody knows your name, you know. Anyways, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about here today. Friends is number four, by the way. I know you're thinking like, oh, Friends has got to be up there. It is. But, but regardless, you know, the point of it is we love the end. Today we're going to talk about sort of the finale of uh, God's judgment in the book of Revelation. That's where we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 15 and 16. The title of my message is the, F- the finale of God's wrath. Now, it's really best to take chapters 15 and 16 together, but because you guys only give me three hours on a Sunday morning, I can only do 15 this morning. So uh, unless you give me another couple hours, we can get through it. But seriously, it, it, there's a lot in chapter 15, and I, didn't, I, I could have taught it more of a survey of these, but I, I like to go verse by verse in detail. And so we just get where we get, and we don't throw a fit, right? That's what I tell my kids anyways, but... Uh, so uh, we're going to look at chapter 15 this week, and next week, yes, in Church in the Park, we'll look at chapter 16, where the seven bowls are being poured out. And I prayed about this, and I thought, Lord, is this the right message for Church in the Park? I thought, well, man, I really would love to teach Hebrews chapter 1, in the first few verses, where it talks about God speaking to the world in various ways, and then... These last days he's speaking to us through his son. I thought, man, that'd be a great message in open air. But I felt like the Lord said, no, I I think the better message is Revelation chapter 16 in the seven bold judgments. People are warned about what's coming. And, uh, you know, so as people walk by, you know, be praying that God will reach people. He, He can do things like that. And church in the park isn't just us going out in, in the park to enjoy, you know, his creation. That's part of it. But part of it is to be a witness to a community of people, you know, to see what the Lord will do with just us doing church outside of the four walls of a building. And I hope that that extends on in a daily life for you. That's what it's supposed to be. The church is not a building. We know that. But sometimes we act like it is, you know. But we're the church. And so we take God everywhere we go. And whatever we do matters. So uh, Revelation 15 this morning and uh, I've divided these verses up into three sections the, relating to the finale, uh, the, the uh, what is that? I don't know. Finale, come on, man. Checking out on me, choo-choo. I hate when the train leaves the tracks without the, the engineer. But, um, so we're going to first look at the sign of the finale in verse 1 here, where John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. John says that he sees another sign 
in heaven. This is the third sign that John has seen so far in heaven. We capture the other two in the very beginning verses of Revelation chapter 12. The first one is found in Revelation 12.1, and it says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Who does the woman represent again? Do you remember? Israel, right? Then we find the second sign, Revelation chapter 12, verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Who does the dragon represent? Satan, remember? So John now brings us to what he calls another sign, which is the third uh, sign that we find in the book of Revelation, and it is the seven angels with the seven plagues. Now, we know the number seven represents the number of what? Completion. So here we find seven angels, seven messengers that are bringing seven plagues, completing the judgments of God upon a Christ-rejecting world. This is what we find here in Revelation chapter 15. This is the finale of God's wrath. This is the final stage of the book of Revelation. This is, by the way, midway through the tribulation period. It's, it's God, John seeing this sign midway through. We've been in sort of a parenthetical pause all the way up until we get to this point. And it's sort of John just describing all these other things, and some of it's casting us backwards to events where we see Revelation 12. You know, we're talking way back before Jesus even existed and, uh, you know, really God raising up Israel. And, and then he talks about in verse 2, the child that will come. The child is Jesus. But, but he's casting us backward. It just, it's not necessarily in chronological order in those particular verses or chapters. But here we find it picking it up midway through the tribulation period. John's seeing this sign now. And this is the final judgment that as God is going to rain down on planet earth. He says that it's, it's a sign that in heaven that was great and amazing. Now, I don't know about you, but I would think that everything in heaven was great and amazing. Right? I would think like, I think uh, it was uh, maybe Gail Irwin or somebody who said that the most famous word in heaven is going to be, wow, wow, wow. Everywhere you look, it's going to be amazing. But check this out. John says what he saw, specifically in this moment, was great and amazing. The word great here in the Greek is pertaining to being surprised and also in view of being important. So it's not just a matter of importance, but this is something that he's surprised by, right? And then the word uh, also we find here amazing pertaining to that which is worthy of amazement or wonder, This is literally shock and awe in heaven. That's what he's seeing. This is shock and awe. John encounters this sign, and he's like, whoa, I did not expect this. He's in shock, and he's amazed by what he sees. What does he see? Seven angels with seven plagues. This is uh, the the wrath of God being, being presented through these Uh, messengers, and by way of these seven plagues. I want to explain the word wrath before we get into anything else here. There are two different words in the book of Revelation that uh, translate wrath 
in the English. The first one that we encounter is in Revelation chapter 6, where we talk about the wrath of the Lamb. That word wrath in Revelation chapter 6 is the Greek word orge, and that means a state, a, a, a state of mind of anger. So it's just, just a, a disposition of anger, like a, a state of mind of anger relating to, uh, you know, God relating to the Christ-rejecting world. But the Greek word used in our passage this morning is the Greek word uh, themos, and it's defined as, listen to this, a state of intense anger with implications of passionate outbursts. Like to me, this translates, God has had it. God has had it. This is the, the finality of his, his judgment has now come. He is, he's literally said, I will not contend with man forever. And his patience has come to an end. Relating to the world. There's a time frame all involved in this and the Father knows these things. But how patient he is with you and I with this world today. But there will come a point when his patience reaches a limit. And then his passionate outburst of anger will come through these seven angels with these seven plagues. The word plague here is not to be understood as contagious disease or pestilence. Literally, the word, it can mean that. But in this case, it doesn't mean that. In this case, it means literally to strike. It means to strike. It, this is seven deadly blows upon a Christ-rejecting world. Sounds serious. It is serious because he also mentions not only is it God striking the earth with his passion, passionate outburst of anger, but also it's his last his, it's his last moments of his judgment upon planet earth. It says these are the last of God's judicial inflictions on, the, on a Christ-rejecting world. Means that he, in these bold judgments comes the completion of the wrath of God upon this world. Uh, and it's important to note that because, the, you know, many people come to Revelation chapter 15 and they say, Oh, well, this is when the wrath of God begins. Actually, no, this is when the wrath of God ends. It's the last of the wrath of God. Where does it begin? Revelation chapter 6, in the seal judgments. Listen, at the end of the day, there's a there is a distinction between the first three and a half years of the book of Revelation, or the tribulation period, and the last three and a half years. The distinction is this. God's wrath is poured out in both, but it becomes intensified and, and far more, uh, you know, devastating in the last three and a half years than the first three and a half years. But don't, don't make a mistake in thinking that the first three and a half years, there's no wrath of God. What do you think the seal judgments are? What do you think the trumpet judgments are? This is God trying to get a hold of the world and telling them this, <laughs> the book of Revelation is real. It's not a fairy tale. Like these things are going to happen. It is the wrath of God. Now the wrath of God intensifies here, and we find the last of the wrath of God being poured out here um, in Revelation uh, 16, ultimately when the judgments come. But this, is, this will be the last of it. 
The word last means to bring in activity to a successful close. To bring in activity to a successful close, to complete. This is the same word that Jesus used when he cried out on the cross, it is finished, completed. What was he talking about? The, the, the ability to be reconciled to the Father through the Son. It is finished. Salvation has been established. The wrath of God has been drank by Jesus on your behalf. There are two choices when it comes to the wrath of God, folks. You can experience it full on yourself, or you can let Jesus drink it for you. That's, those are the choices. Many people will choose to drink it themselves. And it's such a sad choice, and it is a choice. God desires that no man would perish, but all would come to repentance. He desires for people to look upon Jesus as Savior, to turn away from their lives and, and press into him and allow his, his blood to wash away our sins. That's what he desires for us. And he's reaching out to a Christ-rejecting world over and over and over again. But this is the last point, folks. This is it. This is when judgment comes on planet Earth. So we have the, the sign of the, uh, f- why can't I say this word right now? Finale, come on, Tim, of God's wrath. Second, we see the song of the finale in verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the, and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, moving from the shock and awe here of the seven angels with the seven plagues, John now sees what appears to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. It's important to note that it's not a sea of glass mingled with literal fire. That's not, it's, it's like this, he says. So, you know, there's a lot of different ideas about what it is. Maybe it's, a, it's like a crystal floor that, you know, has some, some romantic fiery red mood lighting, you know, that's reflecting all over in heaven. Could you imagine what that would look like? In light of what's about to happen. It's, it's imagery, It's a picture of what God is about to rain down on planet Earth. That is what we do know. We know that this this fiery red is, 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 fire is often in the the Bible uh, representative of the judgment of God. And the judgment of God is now being ready to be poured out upon this world. John Wolvord comments here. He says, here the sea mingled with fire speaks of the divine judgment proceeding from God's holiness. The fact that the saints are able to stand upon it reflects the faithfulness of God in upholding his own in keeping with his divine character. Some suggest that the sea is specifically the word of God with its precious promises to the saints. Now, John notes here, you know, Walbert says it's them standing upon this this thing. And John here in, in the ESV translation, it says that they are standing beside the sea of glass. Do you know the Greek word for beside is the, is the word epi? 
You know what the word epi means? Upon. It means upon or on. It is the, the, the same, it's the, that's the, the third experience that believers have with the Holy Spirit. We have the, the, um, the with experience of the Holy Spirit. We have the in experience of the Holy Spirit. And then we have the upon experience of the Holy Spirit. Only believers have that. Unbelievers have the one experience with the Holy Spirit, which is he is with us in the world, wooing people to Christ. That is an experience that all people will have with the Holy Spirit. His conviction upon sin and those sorts of things, drawing people to the Father. But a believer has two additional experiences. One is the sealing of the Holy Spirit upon salvation. When you come to salvation, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. And then we have the upon experience of the Holy Spirit, which is the baptism, what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's an, it's an empowerment by the Holy Spirit to be a witness for Christ in the world. It's the same experience that that's actually being celebrated today in the Pentecost, in the Holy Spirit coming upon the church. Acts chapter 2, they're up in the upper room and they're, they're praying and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They've already been sealed with the Spirit by Jesus when he said, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's when they were sealed with the Spirit. Now they have the upon experience of the Holy Spirit, which is an empowerment. And look what happens. Acts chapter 2, go back and read it. God empowers Peter to stand and give a message where uh, 3,000 people get saved that moment. God drawing people to himself. And so this, this literally means the upon, they're standing upon this sea of glass here. So what Walvard said is true. And who is it that's standing there? It's those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, referring to those who had been martyred for their faith in Christ during the tribulation period specifically. They're the ones standing on this sea of glass. Remember back in Revelation chapter 13, it says specifically that God gave the Antichrist, the, 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 he allowed him to make war. Well, Revelation chapter 13 verse 7, it says it. The Antichrist is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. What do you think that means? means they're going to probably die. That's probably what it means. It means that God has allowed the, the Antichrist to have such power in the world that, that the martyrs will be made in the tribulation period. Those who stand for Christ will be martyred. They will be killed. Not everyone, but some. Not everybody. We know the 144,000 minimum are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And I believe those are the ones that go into uh, the millennial kingdom to repopulate the earth. Where do the people come from? Does God... He form and fashion new people and put them in the millennial kingdom. I think it's the 144,000 minimum who survive the tribulation period that last, you know, that move into the millennial reign of Christ and then they repopulate the earth. And that's where unbelievers come from. Unbelievers will not transfer from the tribulation period into the millennial kingdom. That is, that once Christ comes back, those people are wiped off the earth. They're done. The people that will survive our believers in Christ. Will it be only the 144,000? I don't think so. I don't know, though. Could be. But what, what we know is that the earth is repopulated for a thousand years, and then at the end, Satan, Satan being bound during that time, and then Satan is loosed again, and he woos, people to, he woos people back to himself, even though they see a physical Christ on a throne. So 
Don't think for a second, man, that Adam and Eve, what a bunch of morons. Listen, (laughs) you may have been just like them. You probably would have been. Maybe even far worse, you know. Or the Jews as we read the Old Testament, whatever. So here we have these saints who have overcome the enemy here. God has allowed that to happen. Notice it says that they conquered the beast. How did they conquer the beast? Through their death. That's how they conquer the beast, through their death. They did not give in to the system. They allowed themselves to stand for Christ. Their lives were given up, and they conquered the beast. Why? Because the beast has no power over a believer and where they will live eternally. Death has no sting for the believer. So death is just the transport from earth to heaven, folks, for the believer. For the unbeliever, it is the transport to eternal damnation. And it's a sad thing. But they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. It's Jesus, how we overcome, how we we're able to stand in Christ because we have the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to do so. These guys overcame. And look, not only are they they're standing in heaven now, Standing as a picture of victory, we've overcome, and, and look, at, look at what they're holding now. They're holding harps of God in their hand. These aren't harps that the little cherub, you know, say, here, take my harp. I was sitting on this cloud over here playing it, but I guess you can have it. No, it's actually they earned it. They earned it. You want to know how to, how to get on the worship team in heaven? This is how you do it. The, the harp is a stringed instrument that's handheld. It could be translated guitar very easily. The only instruments that we find in the book of Revelation are harps and trumpets. And I'm a firm believer that the percussions come from God himself with the thundering of, you know, the throne and all. But for those of you who are traditional and say, well, where's the organ? It's not there. There's no organ in heaven. Listen, there's no piano in heaven. There is none of that. The only thing that we find is harps and trumpets. And I've a, I'm of the mindset that there are going to be gigantic martial stacks in heaven with distortion that reaches galaxies far beyond our imaginations. I have a picture of it up there for you. And you know why we know that's the picture of heaven? Because there's a cross right there. And obviously that's Christian. So purely that's the Lord, right? I'm not dogmatic about this though. So just so you know, but anyway, uh, But seriously, these tribulation martyrs are part of the worship team in heaven. They will play God a song and not only play it for him, but they will also sing him a song. And it's the song of, not written by them, it's a song written by Moses and also known as the song of the Lamb. And it goes like this, great and amazing, no, I don't know how to sing it, so... But it just, it's going to be sung or somehow. Great and amazing are your deeds. O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways. O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. Think about that. Who will not fear, O Lord? It means everybody at some point being faced with God will have the fear of God in their hearts. And glorify his name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. 
Now, some suggest that these are two songs. Uh, Others suggest that it's just one song with two titles. I'm of that mentality, sort of similar to Quiet Riot's Metal Health or Bang Your Head. You you guys know that song, don't you? Yeah. What about uh, Grand Funk Railroads Close to Home or also known as I'm Your Captain? One song, two titles. I think it's kind of similar to this. The elements of this song come from two places. One, it's a song of Moses. I believe that it points us back to Exodus uh, Exodus chapter 15. And then also, it's the song of the Lamb, which we know comes from Revelation chapter 5. So we're going to look at uh, Exodus chapter 15 really quickly. And I would encourage you to read the entire chapter when you get an opportunity to. But um, this this moment is right after God delivers the children of Israel through the Red Sea, as he parts the Red Sea, water's piled up. They walk over on dry ground, mind you. It's water's piled up as a miracle, but the other miracle is they're on, it's dry ground. They walk over on dry ground, and then, so we have the deliverance of God making a way for them, but then the judgment of God when Pharaoh's armies come right behind them and the waters just engulf them and they are all wiped out. And here's the words of Moses at the, on the other side of the Red Sea here in verses 1 through 6. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea, deliverance and judgment. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his, uh, and his host he's cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went um, down into the depths of a stone. Like, like a depths, or they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Deliverance and judgment. Deliverance and judgment all the way through the entire a song that they sing. The song of Moses is a song of victory. The song of, of the Lord standing up for his people and providing a way and also at the same time judging those who are coming against the elect, against the, his people, against his children. And that's never changed. God will do the same all the way through. He will do the same. He will provide a way for his children. He will judge those who stand against them. Of course, there's a promise to those who Bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. But there is, in a sense, every child of God that has this experience of knowing that God is the deliverer, and he's also the judge, and he takes note of everything that goes on in your life, and he will act accordingly. He does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not only will they sing this song, but they will also have elements of the song of the Lamb, which is speaking about um, redemption in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, verse 12, and then verse 13. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God uh, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on, this, on the earth. And then on to verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then on to verse 13, to him who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is the song of redemption for those who have been redeemed by the Lamb of God. The tribulation martyrs will sing a song that echoes these themes, deliverance, judgment, and redemption. I want you to focus on these words just for a minute. I'm going to break this song down for you. I want you to understand something, that this song right here is not an expression of the martyrs and how much they love God. It is not an expression of how grateful they are for the deliverance of God. It is not an expression of how much more they want of him. It is not an expression of man to God at all. And in fact, this song is all about God and his character and his nature. And, you know, we've talked about this as a worship team and, and you know, and, and, and things that there are far too many songs about us expressing our gratitude and thanks and how much more we want of God and all these sorts of things, but not enough about who he is. We worship him because of who he is. Secondarily, because of what he's done, yes, but, but we worship the Lord because he is worthy of worship. And if he doesn't do another thing in your life, he's worthy of worship. The, the song is broken down into four specific things. First, the, 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 the writer, Moses, and whoever else, you know, the Lord himself, it speaks of his works. Great and amazing are your deeds. God's deeds are great and amazing. He doesn't do anything halfway or mediocre. Everything that God does is done in excellence. And he completes everything that he starts. He doesn't do anything halfway. His works are great and amazing. Notice the, the, the next thing. What about his ways? It says, oh, Lord, God the Almighty, just and true are your ways. Just and true are your ways. You know, God is never out of balance relating to his attributes. You know, we think like, oh, well, God is love. He is love, but he's also just. Well, God is gracious. He is gracious, but he's also the judge. Right? So we, we have all of these elements, and they're never out of order. We, we don't understand this because we don't operate like this. We're conditional so often in the way that we relate to one another. If you're kind to me, I'm kind to you. If you're not kind to me, I'm not kind to you. Anybody relate to that? Only one person. That's awesome. It was me, by the way. <laughs> Being honest, man, the Lord knows. His ways are not our ways, but they can be. If we want to be in balance in the way that we relate to one another and the way that we relate to this world, then we surrender. We take on his, his ways and his thoughts. We can't do it outside of the Holy Spirit, folks. But he wants us to represent him well. And the only way that we can is if we take on his ways because his ways are perfectly balanced. They're not out of whack at all. Notice that when it comes to his ways, you know, he, 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 his love doesn't overshadow his righteousness. He's perfect in all his ways. And there's plenty of psalms and verses in the Bible that speak of that. This brings up the next section of the song that speaks of his worthiness. O king of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, the, and glory your name, for you alone are holy. God is worthy, period. Not anything else needs to be said. Not because of, 
all that he's done in your life or anything like that. He's just worthy, period. He is perfect. And he's, he's, he's you know, like I said, in balance in all ways. He's worthy. And he created us to understand that. That we should worship him because he's worthy. You know, why do we give God our life? Why is he deserving of our life? Because he's worthy. Because he's, because he's creator of all things and he deserves that. And there's plenty of Bible verses. Just look up worthy and you'll see tons of verses, uh, you know, in the Bible that speak about the worthiness of God. He is worthy of all men to fear him. He is worthy of all men to glorify him. He is worthy of all. Not only that, but also he is, also we notice that the, the, the final section in this song is about his worship. Notice all nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. God designed you and I to be worshipers. And newsflash, you will worship. You'll worship something. It may not be God, but you're, you're a worshiper and you will worship something. Some, some parents worship their kids. Some people worship their jobs. Some people, if you go to India, they worship virtually everything they have. Literally. No joke. We are people who are created to worship and if we don't have things right in our in our you know theology and such if we don't come to Christ we'll never have that right we'll never understand that we'll never the lord will never be able to um, be worshiped by us in the way that he should be it's 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 that moment when you come to Christ and the holy spirit invades you comes inside of you and all of a sudden you're perfectly aligned and now you understand you're to worship one person and worship one person only, and it's the Lord. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not anything else. It's him and him alone. Everything else is called idolatry. Whoa, that seems tough for my kids. Idolatry, yeah. He deserves the one slot in your life when it comes to worship. He deserves that seat and nobody else. And when we get it right, then everything else falls in place. Jesus said it, man. If you love anything more than you love me, you're not worthy of me. You love your mother, your father, whoever it is. If you love them more than you love him, you're not worthy of him. Wow. That's pretty eye-opening. So he is worthy of our worship. The song is all about God. The song is all about him. And it has really little to do with how we feel about it. These are facts. And this is why we worship him. This is why we, we, we spend time. This is why we serve. This is why we go out into the world and all of this kind of stuff. Because he alone is worthy of all this. I love that about this song. So, uh, you know, we've considered the finale of, uh, the, the sign of the finale, the uh, song of the finale. Now we're going to look at the sanctuary during the finale. Look at verse 5. After this I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen and golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. 
So now John turns from the song, what he's hearing now, to what he's seeing there in the sanctuary. Listen, very important, of the tent of witness in heaven. What is he talking about? This is Old Testament imagery. This is talking about the tabernacle. He's talking about specifically the sanctuary in the tabernacle, which would be speaking of the Holy of Holies. This is the meeting place of God in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, where this is where God would meet with man and atonement would be made upon the Ark of the Covenant, that mercy seat there. Two angelic beings face downward to this one little place where the blood would be uh, placed upon it and the Lord would meet man there. It would be the blood of the sacrifice that would cover their sins, not take away. But many people have made this analogy and it's, it's, it, the idea is so true. It's the picture is, is awesome that Jesus himself sat on the mercy seat and he didn't just cover your sin. He wiped it away completely. It's his blood. All of this pointing to Jesus. But here we find uh, John being drawn back to Old Testament imagery, which is very Jewish, isn't it? Very, very uh, uh, specific when it comes to the nation of Israel. And again, all through the book of Revelation from, from pretty much chapter 4 on is so much about Old Testament imagery. Why? Because this is God focusing on the nation of Israel Turning, trying to turn them back towards himself for one, one last opportunity for them as well. And not every Jew will go to heaven, folks. It's not about a nationality. It's about, uh, it's about, it's by grace through faith in Christ alone, period. And even in the Old Testament, it was by faith. Abraham, how, you know, he's mentioned in the, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, where it talks about it was by faith. It was, Paul talks about uh, Abraham's faith in the book of Romans. I think it's chapter 3. It's always been by faith. It always will be by faith. But the nation of Israel, God is focusing on the nation of Israel in these last seven years on planet Earth to deal with the covenants that he has made with them and all of those sorts of things. There's never been in the history of the world... Listen, another nation that has been dispersed and been able to stay intact as a nation and then come back into their nation still exist. That is a miracle. But that's because God has a plan for the nation of Israel. And, and here John, uh, John is seeing, you know, this, this idea of pointing us back to the, the nation of Israel and to the place where they met, the tabernacle in the sanctuary of the tent of witness. And what we find here is, here we have the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven. It was opened and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues. I want you to understand that this is not, not really about the place they're coming from, but about the person they're coming from. Right? The, the, the experience of these guys coming out, they're being sent by God. This isn't about them coming out of the sanctuary, but it's about them being sent by God out of the sanctuary to do his work on planet Earth, these last seven bold judgments being poured out. And notice how they come. They're clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. Some suggest the appearance of these angels speaks of their 
holiness, their purity and righteousness. The imagery, again, is reminiscent of Old Testament, uh, you know, um, priestly clothing. But also, it points us to Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, where we see Jesus dressed similarly. This is the speak about the, 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 that these, these servants, these messengers, angel translated messenger, that they're free from corruption, immorality, and injustice. Not in and of themselves, but because of where they're coming from, who they're coming from. They're coming from the Lord. It's his hand upon their life. They're going in his power, and they are going to now carry out the fiery wrath of God upon a Christ-rejecting world. Listen, the writer of Hebrews has it dead on right when he says in Hebrews chapter 10, 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These seven bowls are full of God's wrath. They're full of it, like to the brim. And he is going to execute just like he said he was going to. I said it before, he will not contend with man forever. And this is where his patience has hit its limit. And now he will move on the final judgment upon this world. John goes on to say, and the sanctuary. Look at the response in the sanctuary. The sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This would draw us back to Exodus chapter 19. Verses 16 through 18, listen to what it says. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Uh, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole uh, mountain trembled greatly. This is an emblem of speaking of majesty and glory. The smoke filled in the, in the temple there, in the, in the sanctuary, in heaven, is, is speaking of the glory and the power of God. When God descended upon Mount Sinai, it was speaking of the glory and the power of God. It's imagery of God trying to help people understand who he is. And they tremble rightly before the Lord. You know, we talk about fearing God and we're like, oh, that doesn't, that's not what it means. Oh, really? What I read in the Bible is when people come encounter with angels, they fall on their faces. They're not God, right? When we come before God, you know, in Christ, it's gonna be awesome, but but there will be the fear of God in our hearts, the correct fear of God. And I wonder sometimes, is that really just the reverence of God? Like, hey, man, you know, I don't think so. I think it will be an awesomeness that we've never experienced before in, in life. And I'm not, I'm not saying that you'll be, you know, fear is not of the Lord. But the fear of God is the beginning of everything. So there is a, there is a fear that we're to have before the Lord. And, and, and the idea of the trembling before God is to understand who he is. Here we find, you know, him descending on this mountain like this. These people are trembling. You know, God is not just um, a white fluffy cloud, but an awesome cloud of glory and power. And when he descends upon someone or something, it's, 
It's life-changing. Moses demonstrates that fact for us. You know, when, when he goes up, comes down from Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 and 30, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hands, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone like he, he had been talking with God Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. It makes me think, when we come in and out of here on a weekly basis in the sanctuary of God, and Marty was referring to this this morning, you know, we come in to see the glory and power of the Lord. You know, the other question is, are we leaving with the glory and the power of the Lord upon us? that people can see it. You know, there is a, a, a real sense in which God is a life changer and a real encounter with God, not experiential. I'm talking about a real encounter with God will change your life and people will take note of that. You know, again, you come into, you come into a salvation and the, the, the biggest, you know, sort of, you know, evidence that you're a believer is your changed life. Like, you, something's happened. You've been changed. You know, and sometimes we can come in the sanctuary just routinely, in and out, and we're not, the, nothing's happening. You have to ask yourself, why? Is it that God is not here? Or is it that I'm not here? Is it that God is here and I'm not pressing in? Or why is it that People can have an encounter with God and they can leave incredibly changed. Stephen, his face was the face of an angel. Moses, his face shone with the glory of God. What about your face? What about my face? And what is our experience with the Lord? What, how is the Lord transforming us on a regular basis? Here's what I know. The sanctuary of God is not a four-wall building. The sanctuary of God is your heart. He tabernacles with you, the Holy Spirit inside of you. You know, so you meet with him wherever you go. You take him wherever you go. Is the glory of God shining through you in a way that people know that, you know, I love that, that Peter and John, when they were coming out of the temple, I think it's Acts 5, they know that they had been with Jesus. They know that they had been with Jesus. Their life was changed and transformed to such a degree that everybody in Jerusalem knew that they had been with Jesus. And man, I want to, every time I sit down with Jesus, I want to walk away in such a way that people will know that I've been with Jesus. Take it serious, man. He, he wants to meet with you, but he won't force you. He won't, he won't make you press into him. He won't make you uh, encounter his glory and his power. But some of you want it, and you desire that, and so we just press into it. We don't command God to do anything. We, won't, we wait on the Lord to do whatever he wants to do, but here's what I know. Uh, when, we, when we press into him, we leave changed. We, he doesn't take our imprintation. We take his, and we take on his, his uh, ways and his thoughts, not, not the reverse. John saw all of heaven filled with smoke. The sanctuary of God filled with smoke. Nobody could go into the sanctuary at this point. Why? Why can nobody go in the sanctuary in this moment? 
Why, why isn't God saying, hey guys, come on in and let's watch and see what's going to happen? Why is God isolating himself in the sanctuary in this moment saying, nobody come in here until these judgments are poured out? It's all speculation, purely. But I will tell you that in the, the, God of, the God that I understand God to be in the Bible is a God that would mourn a world that is going to hell as he pours out his last judgments. Jesus coming to Jerusalem at the very last, as he's getting ready to do the triumphal entry, and he weeps before the nation of Israel. Why? Because they were unwilling. And here's God in those last moments of his judgment being poured out, these bold judgments getting ready to destroy the world. And God shuts the sanctuary doors, and it's filled with his glory and power. And there he is, saying, no one can enter until I'm finished with this. I don't know. It's something to think about. It's in the word of God for a reason, but I know God to be, in, you know, God is, God, for God so loved the world. Listen, I know that, uh, you know, he loves you and he loves me, but he loves a whole bunch of people out there that don't love him back. And he loves them desperately. You know, and his love doesn't overshadow his righteousness, his judgment will come down, but do not think. The Bible says that God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No pleasure. God in his sanctuary in this moment, pouring out his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. What do you think he's doing? I don't know. But it's very interesting that he's isolated and the sanctuary is closed. And he's, until this is over. Here's what I know is God, doesn't, God desires for you and I to not be here when this happens. He desires for you and I not to experience the bold judgments. And if you're in Christ, I don't think you will. Uh, I'm, I, I believe that, you know, the Lord will remove his church before uh, this tribulation period happens. But here's what I know, regardless, that we will conquer in Christ's name anyways. It does not matter. It's irrelevant. How should we leave from this place in this situation with this, these bold judgments on our mind? Again, it, it, should, it should put a fire underneath the true believer that says, man, Lord, this is coming. Everybody in the world can sense this. Everybody in the world can sense that the Lord is coming soon. Everybody in the world is looking around and they're saying the language that's in the Bible. The great reset a one-world government, you know, some guy that's going to materialize that has trillions at his disposal. Come on, guys. We know what this is all about, and the world is sensing it too. So here's what I'm saying. It's time to not just go through the motions, Christian. It's time to get in the game. It's time to, to, to do you know what? To really put yourself out there and risk every relationship you have that they would know about Jesus Christ. That's where, where we're at, folks. And I want to encourage you, man. You know, consider these judgments coming down. These are meant to be fire under us to go into the world. You know, um, God gave us this understanding for that purpose. Not because he wants to, you to fear, you know, your loved ones and all this kind of stuff. He wants you to act and he wants you to be in the game and he wants you to go out and be his witness, you know, to take on his love and to tell people about uh, the, the relationship that people can have with Christ.
man, you know, Jesus, somebody told you about Jesus, and you're here this morning if you're in Christ, and we're going to celebrate communion, and, and we're going to rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. But I hope when we leave, having partaken of the elements of Christ, his body and his blood, that we leave with a new sense of urgency in our hearts to go and tell people about the same communion they can have with him. God, God is the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He's an incredibly loving God, but he will judge the world as it relates to Jesus. And what I want you to think about as we're partaking of communion is, and even next week, as we look at the bold judgments of, of God coming down on this world, that Christ drank that wrath for you. Christ drank the wrath of God for you. And as we partake this morning, just be thinking about that, about what Jesus has done in, in order that you and I would be reconciled to him. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, as we, as we just move into a time of communion, Lord, that you just help our hearts to be drawn, Lord, to you. We don't want to partake of communion in, any, in a flippant way, Lord, in an unworthy manner. But, Lord, we want to partake of communion and reflecting on what you've done for us. When, when Jesus, when you instituted the, the, the Last Supper, the communion meal, you said, do this in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, let us be reflective on who you are this morning. And uh, we, we just pray for anyone in this place, Lord, doesn't have a right relationship with you, that they can call upon your name and be saved. Their sins can be wiped away. This could be the very first communion uh, of many communions to come for them. But they have to turn from their sin and turn to you this morning. They have to confess Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. They'll be saved, your word says. So we pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that they would, even right now, in the quietness of their own hearts, Lord, in a sincere cry to you, just say, Lord Jesus, I come to you. And I want to give my life to you, Lord. I'm turning away from the things that I've been doing, the sin in my life. I'm turning away from it, Lord. I'm turning to you now. And I want to be your follower. And I believe that you died on the cross for me. And I believe that you rose again from the dead for me. And I receive you as my Lord. And Lord, we know that if a, a prayer in sincerity like that that will change an eternal destination. So we pray for anybody online that doesn't know you, um, listening to this later, Lord, that they take that seriously. And for the rest of us, Lord, as we just, uh, for believers here today, Lord, speak to our hearts and just encourage us this morning as we remember what you've done for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.